Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. He was born and raised in Ada, Oklahoma. Ron Williamson was the youngest of three children and the only son. He was a standout athlete, even when very young, and he excelled in several sports, although his primary interest was baseball. In fact, he was drafted um, for the the Oakland Athletics, or by the Oakland Athletics. However, his life changed dramatically. When on December 8, 1982, Debbie Sue Carter, after visiting the Coach Light Bar, which was a a bar in Ada that Ron Williamson frequently visited, she was found murdered. Ron Williamson was arrested five years later and was found guilty in 1988, and he received a death sentence. Eleven years later, he was exonerated through DNA, found to be completely innocent, The man who was charged was a man called Glenn Gore. Glenn Gore testified against Ron Williamson in the trial. And it was partly his testimony that caused Ron Williamson to be found guilty when he, in fact, was later convicted, ultimately convicted, of the murder of Debbie Sue Carter. This story was made famous by John Grisham, in his book, The Innocent Man, Murder and Injustice in a Small Town. And I think it's interesting because in many ways it parallels the journey that we are on. Turn with me to Revelation 12. We are being accused of murder. And as a result of that accusation, if found guilty, we are on death row and have the death penalty over our head. In Revelation 12 and verse 10, John writes, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength, and the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And that word accuse is legal language. God is a great judge. And there's somebody in front of this great judge accusing us night and day of murder. And if we are found guilty, we will be put to death. We need some DNA evidence some evidence that is as powerful as DNA, to clear us of this murder charge and to take us out of death row. In fact, at one point, Ron Williamson was hours away from being executed. Fortunately, he got a stay of execution, and then eventually this DNA evidence came forward to release him from death row. 1 John 3, just back a little bit, 1 John 3. Here is the equivalent of our DNA evidence. Here here is what we have to present to our judge in confidence to say that we are not murderers and the accusation is false. 1 John 3 and verse 14 says, we know that we have passed from death unto life. We've come off death row. We were all on death row. And we now have the confidence that we're no longer on death row. Why? Because we love the brethren. This is our proof. This is our our DNA evidence. When Satan comes with his accusation that we are murderers, we present this evidence. We, We love the brethren. And God looks at that and says, we're clear. We're clear. That is sufficient evidence that we have passed from death unto life. He that loves not his brother 
is on death row. So if any of us have in our hearts hatred toward any of God's people who are part of the body of Christ, we are on death row. When we know in our hearts that we have love of the brethren, we know that we are no longer. That is our DNA evidence. When, when Satan comes with his accusation, Christ presents this as our defense attorney. Christ presents our love of the brethren. And God says, yep, yeah, they're clear. He that loves not his brother abides in death. Whosoever hates his brother is a murderer. So the accusation is true. If we hate our brother, we are murderers. Whoever, there's, there's, it's not like whoever, but there's a few exceptions. There's no exception. Anybody in God's church that hates his brother is a murderer. If we are sort of, you know, we're the special group or we're the special congregation. And if you're not part of our group, we hate you. You know, you're Laodicean or whatever term we want to put on you. God is saying no exception. doesn't matter who you are. I want to call myself a prophet, but I'm teaching this sort of exclusive hatred. I'm a murderer. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. In other words, every murderer is on death row. Every murderer will be put to death for his crime. There's no defense. So when Satan comes with his accusation, the defense attorney comes and wants to present the evidence to say that my my client is innocent. There's no evidence to present if we hate our brother. Hereby perceive we the love, hereby perceive we the love of God. So this is how we perceive the love of God. When, 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 we, when we love our brother, it gives us an understanding of the love of God. So we see here, because he laid down his life for us, And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. I think when we kind of read between the lines here, brethren, I think what we can see is loving our brother can be challenging. Loving our brother can be painful. But if we understand the love of God, we can do it. Because the love of God is not dependent on the recipient's behavior. It's dependent on the love of God. And if we have that, And even though we might be abused by brethren, even though we might be neglected by brethren, even though we may be hated by brethren, the way we respond, what we find when we examine our hearts, we love the brethren. We look at them and we understand they're human. We understand that we're all on a journey and we're all at different levels and we all have baggage and we all have dysfunction. And we just have this forgiveness in our hearts. To the point where we would lay down our life for that same brother. And that's how we come to understand how God's love operates. On the other hand, verse 17, But whoso has this world's good, and sees his brother have need, and shuts up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwells the love of God in him? So there's something here, brethren, where our love must not just be in word. That the way we behave or the way we know that we love the brethren is indeed. That no matter what the brethren do to us, no matter how much they might disappoint us, no matter how much they might fall short of our expectations, we still do good. We still serve our brethren. We, we lay down our lives for the brethren. My little children, let us not love in word. Neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And this is the challenge for us, brethren. This is, and this is why uh, Murray and I have said, let's break this down. We have our core values of caring, courtesy, and consideration. Let's take them one at a time. And let's focus in on what does it mean to be caring. So this is the month of caring. What does it mean to be caring? And how do we, how do we move beyond talking about caring? to caring in deed and in truth. And how do we do this? Yes, individually, but in addition to individually, how do we do it collectively? How do we as a congregation 
care indeed. How do we care as a congregation in truth? Let's think about this. Let's spend the next month meditating on this. Let's, let's consider one another, and not just in this congregation. Let's consider the household of God. And as Pastor Murray was saying, it's, it's wonderful, and also in the opening prayer by Brother Gord, that brethren in other fellowships are asking for our prayers. This, this is wonderful. This is a wonderful development. It's the beginning. And it's a way now for us to show caring. So when Pastor Murray leads us in prayer for our brethren in the United Church, this is us collectively demonstrating caring. In what other ways can we as a congregation love, not just in word? You know, it takes a little while to love in word. There's a a level of study that we have to do of God's word to arrive at this point where we have an understanding and we can explain and edify one another what God's love means. That's wonderful. It's not enough. It's insufficient evidence. We're we're, um, limiting our defense attorney's ability to withstand the accusations if all we do is talk about caring. If all we do is talk about love, we have to figure out how can we actually do it in deed and in truth. Verse 19, and this is how. So when when we actually do this, when we transition from talking about it to doing it, this is how we know that we are of the truth. This is the evidence. This is exhibit A. You know, in in this very intense trial, with a very capable accuser. In, in Ron Williams' case, it was this gentleman by the name of Glenn Gore. Interesting name, Gore. Um, you know, who really tore apart this man's life. Knowing all the time that he was the one that was guilty. But standing up on oath and saying, yes, I saw him or whatever evidence he submitted. And caused this man's life to be destroyed. We have an accuser, but we can be sure that our defense will stand. How? Because we love indeed and in truth. And we shall assure our hearts before God. So we can go before God knowing that these accusations are railing against us with a level of assurance. And this is it. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. In other words, when we're asked, do you love your brother? We will know. We, we might say yes, but at the same time, our minds are flashing of all the, time, all the times we've been irritated by our brothers and sisters and the hostility that we have toward them. And maybe they, you know, they're not part of our group, so they're not good enough. And we have that hatred. And when we're before God, we know what's in our hearts. How much more does he know what's in our hearts? But if we can be before God, knowing that we love the brethren, and we know that. How do we know that? We, we've done things. We've, sacrif- we, we've laid down our lives for the brethren. And we have proof. And so we can stand before God, this great powerful judge, with confidence. Because we know that we have proof. Our hearts do not condemn us in this area. When, when Satan comes to say we are murderers, we, we, our hearts don't condemn us. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. So it's interesting. I find this passage interesting because it says, and and I'll open this up for the discussion afterwards because I can't find it. I can't find so far anywhere in the Bible where there's anything else except this love for us to have confidence now that we'll be in the kingdom. I just can't find it. This is the one thing that I can, that, that's tangible that I can look at and say, wow, if I do this, if we do this, we can have confidence now that we'll be in the kingdom tomorrow. I, I, I'll, I'll open it up and see if you can find anything else. I can't. Second Peter 1. Second Peter tells us there's a way that we can be confident we'll be in the kingdom. 
I don't see it as anything different than what John's told us. They seem to be saying the same thing to me. Look at 2 Peter 1. And beginning in verse 3, he says, According, and we, we have covered these scriptures before, According as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that called us to glory and virtue. So Peter's saying we have everything we need. So we're here, the kingdom is there, and God has given us everything through his divine power to get from here to there. So we can be confident. We, 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 can be, we have everything we need to be successful. Whereby are given unto us exceeding, and great, uh, exceeding great and precious promises, that by these, by these wonderful promises, you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, so really apply yourself, add to your faith virtue, so we, we believe, that's the foundation, now add virtue to virtue knowledge, to knowledge temperance, to temperance patience, to patience godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness. So this is now getting into the higher order. We, we need the foundation but we need to move from the milk to the meat. And now we're getting into the meat. The higher order is now to add brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, agape. So once we get to that level where we can now exhibit agape based on brotherly kindness and then based on these other virtues... Then he says, for if these things be in you, so in other words, once we get to that level of agape, if these things are in you and abound, so it's not just that it's in us, it abounds, it's just, it's overflowing. This, this love, this, this caring, this, this courtesy and consideration that we have for one another and for the whole world, it's just overflowing in us. When we get to this level, he says, they make that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, it is possible for us to be barren and unfruitful. But this is a way for us to protect ourselves against being barren and unfruitful. So it's not enough to know. It's wonderful that we know, but that's not enough. We have to move to loving God Indeed, and this is how, not just in word, but he that lacks these things, so he, the brother or sister in the, in the body, that lacks these things, we're not talking about somebody in the world, we're talking about a Christian, he that lacks these things is blind. John says he's a murderer, and he doesn't know it. Here, he's blind, and he cannot see afar off, he doesn't see what's coming. He doesn't see the trial, and the accusation is murder, and we need some DNA evidence to get off death row. He doesn't see this coming. He thinks it's fine. I can just behave any way. He cannot see afar off and has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Remind us of, reminds us of the parable of the wicked servant who had a load of debt that he owed the king, and he pleaded for mercy, and the king was merciful. And somebody owed him pennies, and he exacted judgment from the brother. And, and when the other brethren saw it, they were, they were horrified. And they went to the king and told him, and the king punished that servant. And he said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. So we might forget where we're coming from, and we become so exacting to our brethren. We demand justice, and we forget what we've been forgiven. Wherefore the rather, brethren, instead, don't be like this. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. So this is how we can be sure. And it involves agape. If we don't get to that level of agape, to the point where it abounds, there's an uncertainty. There's a question mark over our heads. But if we can get here, the uncertainty goes away. We can be sure. For if these things, if you, do, if you do these things, so give diligence to make your calling and election, for if you do these things, not just hear about them, not just know about them, 
We actually have to do them. You shall never fall. In other words, if you don't do these things, you might fall. I might fall. So, you know, the, um, Paul writing to the Philippians, he says, work out your salvation together. Work it out. This is a difficult road. How can we as a congregation help each other to fulfill these scriptures? How can we encourage each other? How can we role model for each other how to fulfill these scriptures? Because if we can do this, we will never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So if we can have agape in abundance, the entrance into the kingdom is open in abundance. So this is the question, brethren, that we need to work out. How do we move from believing these things to doing them? And how do we do this as a congregation? How do we do it collectively? Because I might be uh, a very caring person. I'm not, but I might be. For example, hypothetically speaking, I might be a very caring person. But that's not really what we're after. It's how do we as a congregation become a caring community? This is what we're after. Because if we can create this community, if we can create this culture, then everybody who comes into this community benefits and adopts the cultural values that are, that are abounding here. Look at James 2. James 2. And verse 19. So, you know, we believe in God's word. James writes and says, You believe that there is one God. You do well. Well done. Let's not get too um, reassured. Let's not, let's not be too reassured in the fact that, you know what? We believe in God. We believe there's only one God. This is, I'm, I'm looking around me and there's a lot of paganism all around me. There's a lot of immorality all around me. I believe in God. I'm reading the scriptures. I believe in this God. Well done. The devils also believe and tremble. So in a way, kind of if you read between the lines here, on the one hand I could say, you know, Adrian, you're not much better than the devils. You believe in one God, they do too. On the other hand, I could say, you know, Adrian, you're worse than the devils. At least the devils tremble. You think you can treat your brethren any old way and it doesn't matter. At least they tremble. And I think if we really, really understood the word of God, we would tremble. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That any time we're interacting with the people of God, who represent members of Jesus Christ's body, we would be very careful because we believe in God and we believe in the justice of God. We would never abuse brethren in the body because we understand who we're dealing with. But will you know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? So it's great that we believe, but if we don't have works, it's dead. Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Verse 22. See you how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect. So in other words, believing isn't enough. The the faith should move us to action. And and the faith should be seen in our actions. That I I know that, that Brother Gord believes. How do I know? Because of his actions. His faith moves him to action. It's not that you know that I believe. How do you know I believe? Because I, I, I talk a good story. I seem to say the right things. That's how you know I believe. The Bible says that's dead. It's got to move to action. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God. So he did something, and then the scripture says Abraham believed God. He didn't just sit there and say, I believe God. He took action And because of the action he took, it's written that Abraham believed God. And it was imputed unto him for righteousness. And he was called 
the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. So brethren, what I want to do today is just explore with you and ask the question, pose the question, and we can talk about it in the discussion afterwards. Focusing on the core value of caring, how can we as a community become more caring? How, how can we live this out? How can we demonstrate our love for God through our love for the household of God? And again, not limiting the household of God to our congregation or even our organization, but talking about the spiritual organism of Christ's body. How can we demonstrate our care and concern? We're here in James 2. Look at verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, though a man says he has faith and has not works? Can faith save him? I mean, this is kind of scary. Because on the one hand, I know I believe in Jesus Christ. I know it. I have no doubt. I'm willing to die for it. I have no doubt. But can my faith save me? It's almost like, and again, to the youth study, uh, where we were talking about the fact that pride is a, is a subtle danger. That when we're doing well, it's easy now for pride to slip in and destroy us. That, that, that is true congregationally. It's also true individually. So when I know I have this conviction, I have faith, but I don't do anything. James is saying, can your faith save you? And, and, and Peter is saying no. And John is saying, so Peter and John answer James' question. There's work, there's diligent work to be done to demonstrate our faith and to reassure our hearts that we will in fact be in God's kingdom. If a brother or sister, verse 15, if a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food and one of you say unto them, depart in peace, be you warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? Even so, faith, if it has not works, is dead, being alone. And I think, brethren, time is coming when people who have never had to think about where their next meal is coming from, I think a time is coming when we'll have no idea if we'll ever eat again. And we may have to run to someone, or someone may be running to us, and they, they have no food. And we have to decide, are we going to shelter them? Are we going to help them? Or for whatever reason, for whatever reason they're on the run, maybe we don't want to be associated with them. We don't want any trouble. And so we turn our backs on them. And this is what the scripture is saying. Can, is, 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 is that real faith? I think the special music was special and I appreciate the, the lyrics. And I, what stood out for me was, in the storm is where you'll find me. And no doubt a storm is coming. And the Holy Spirit is the comforter. And so when the Holy Spirit is truly working through us, we will find comfort. When it's stormy out there, there'll be comfort in here. And so developing this really matters. It's preparing us for what's coming. And, and how horrible the day will be when all around us is falling apart. And we're falling apart here too. And there is no comfort. That's not God's will. When all around us is falling apart, we want excitement in here because we know our Lord is coming. And we're able to comfort one another. John 15. Verse 
John 15 and verse 4, Christ says this, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can you, except you abide in me. So this edict that we have, this, this instruction, this command that we have to love one another, What I take from this, brethren, is it's impossible to do on our own. In order to fulfill the command to love one another, we have to abide in Christ. And as long as we're abiding in Christ, and Christ is abiding in us, we can do the impossible, and we can bear fruit. And we can work as a unit, a a truly unified unit in bearing fruit. But it requires this presence of the Holy Spirit working in each of us individually and then in all of us collectively. He says here in verse 11, well, let's go to verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So he says, abide in me. Well, this is how. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. So again, brethren, I think, I hope it's obvious to us that the times there are changing and, and there's not going to be a lot of joy in the world. In fact, there's going to be a lot of depression, but Christ is saying, I'm giving you these instructions so that you have no reason to be depressed. You will have joy, and, your, and my joy will remain in you. And so this is critical that we learn to love one another and abide in his love. So, brethren, what are some practical ways that we can show caring? Well, James gave us one here to say if a brother or sister is destitute, that we should help them. And I think, you know, I think back to the time there was the young man who had the baby that died. I think it was in Texas. I forget exactly where. Um, you know, reaching out and understanding that health care in the U.S. is not paid for. And so being able to gather a collection and send it to help them. I think that's exactly the sort of thing that God wants from us. So, again, as a community, just keeping an eye open and an ear open and coming back and saying, Uh, Here's a brother or a sister in need. Look at Acts 3. Acts 3 and verse 1. It says, Now when when Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour, and a certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. So it seemed like there was an understanding. This man was lame from birth, so he could not be a productive member of society. He depended on the caring of others. And there was an understanding that the best people to go to are the people of prayer. So, so when you know that they're going to the temple at a certain time, the ninth hour, be there. Because these are people who can be moved by compassion. And so as they're on their way to the temple and they see him, they're on their way to pray to God and they see him in need, he's going to be looked after. So he sort of placed himself strategically to be looked after. And I think, brethren, you know, what I get from this is the people of God should be caring people. And when they see people in need, or when we see people in need, we should respond. We need to be careful, though, that our charity is intelligent. You know, I've heard the term sloppy agape, where we just give and give and give without any thinking. Look at 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 5. First Timothy 5, beginning in verse 1, uh, giving some instructions to Timothy, the Apostle Paul instructing Timothy. 
rebuke not an elder. And this is somebody who's older than you. But entreat him as a father. So we should be careful how we interact with each other, especially our elders. Entreat him as a father. And the younger men as brethren. The elder women as mothers. The younger as sisters with all purity. Then notice this. Honor widows. And that really is to look after them. Support them financially. Honor widows that are widows indeed. But if so, it's, it, notice the intelligence here. It's not any widow, look after her. No, look after the widows, but do some due diligence first. Don't just jump to charity. There's charity after due diligence. But if any widow have children or nephews, then don't support her. So do your, do your due diligence, and if you find out that she's got children, or you find out that she has nephews, don't give her anything. Look after somebody else. So it's not just, oh, look at the poor widow, give her money. Do some homework. Let them, the children or the nephews, learn first to show piety at home and to requite their parents, for that is good and acceptable before God. That's their duty. So yes, the widow needs help, but the duty is on her children or her nephews. Now she that is a widow indeed, so you've done your due diligence, and this woman is truly uh, destitute, she has no supporters, and desolate, and trusts in God, and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. So there's certain criteria here that's required. But she that lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. So make sure that she truly is not just a widow now, but she's a godly widow. And these things give in charge that they may be blameless. Verse 8, but if any provide not for his own, so his own being his own widows, his own family, and especially for those in his own house, he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. That's some pretty strong language. I mean, infidels are bad. And here we're saying brethren in the church that don't look after themselves, that don't look after their households, even though they say all the right things, even though they believe, they're not trembling. Because if they were believing and trembling, they would look after their own. And now what Paul is saying is they're worse than an infidel. Let not a widow be taken into the number, and this is all again to do with widows, so... Uh, these men should be looking after their widows in their family. Let not a widow be taken into the number. Again, notice this. It's not sloppy agape. It's not, you know, you've got money, give it to everybody. You've got resources, share it with everybody. No, there's some diligence required here. Let not a widow be taken into the number under 60 years old, having been the wife of one man. So she's got to be over 60 well reported of for good works, if she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. So she's got to be doing her part. It's not that she comes into the congregation and we're all obligated to give her money. So we cook and she eats, and that's the relationship. Okay, we cook, you eat. We cook, you eat. We cook, you eat. That's not the relationship. You're washing the saints' feet. You're relieving the afflicted. You're following up after every good work. You're doing your part. And then we'll do our part. And we'll support the widow. But those widows that are under 60 refuse. Wow. I thought when you're charitable, you're charitable to everybody. No, he's saying you have to do some due diligence. And there are criteria for giving. And so if the widow is under 60 and she comes and asks you for money, say no. And say no with a clear conscience. For when they have begun to wax wanton against Christ, they will marry. Look at Second Thessalonians now. Second Thessalonians 3.
and beginning in verse 7. Paul is writing to the brethren at Thessalonica, and he says this, For yourselves know, you brethren, you know how you ought to follow us. So we set an example. You should follow our example. What is this? For we behaved not ourselves disorderly among you. And and Daniel was reading this in the youth study. So you should follow our example. We, We were not disorderly. When we came and we were teaching you and we were fellowshipping with you, think about how we conducted ourselves. We were not disorderly. Neither did we eat any man's bread for nothing. So we didn't come like scavengers saying, you cook, we eat. No, we didn't do that. But we wrought with labor and travail night and day that we might not be chargeable to any of you. So not only did we come and teach you, we were working in the night as well. So you saw us in the day teaching. Guess what we were doing in the night while you were sleeping? We were working so that we wouldn't have to ask you for help. Neither did we eat any man's bread for nothing, but wrought with labor and travail night and day that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Not because we have not authority. So they could have said, look, We're here laboring among you. You need to look after us. So do a little bit of a collection. Make sure that we don't have to be worrying about what we're going to eat next so that we can be in the word and we can teach you. And that would be perfectly legitimate. But they didn't do it. They had the authority to say that and do that, but they didn't. Instead, we wanted to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. We wanted you to look at how we conduct ourselves so we would inspire you to do the same. For even when we were with you, this is, you know, I'm writing to you now, but even when I was with you, I told you face to face that if any would not work, neither should he eat. So you saw us. We were working and we ate. We could have asked you to feed us, but we didn't. We worked. And now you've got brethren among you who are so spiritual, they don't have time to work. No, that doesn't work. So if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly. We didn't do that. And we're hearing now that there are brethren among you that are walking disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Now, them that are such, he doesn't say, you know, there's some people that aren't working. You guys ought to do a collection and make sure you finance them. He says, no, we command them that are such and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. So, brethren, we need to be charitable. And I think we need to figure out as a congregation, and I think we are doing things that Sister Sheila has brought a charity to our attention. So every quarter, Jan does a collection and presents that to the charity. And that's exactly what we should be doing. So there's some due diligence that goes into the charity to make sure that it is a legitimate charity, And then we do a collection and we serve them. My question for you, brethren, is, are there brethren in the household of God that need support? And could we, you know, investigate, find that the cause is legitimate and do something to help them? So just a question. I'll just put it out there. And if anybody uh, does have any ideas, let's explore that. So that's one area, brethren. The second area, I think, where we can improve is the area of hospitality. Hospitality. And let's go to Hebrews 13. I really feel here, how shall I say this? Uh, I have a guilty conscience in this area. I am nowhere near as hospitable as I would want to be. And that comes from the example of my grandmother. I used to visit her, and she lived in Manchester, and I would visit her, and she lived in this small townhouse. It wasn't anything. If you saw the townhouse, it's just not impressive. That small townhouse, one-bedroom townhouse, it was the headquarters of the village. Like, Once I got there, all day people were coming. 
And all day she was cooking and baking and people would come and I would be laughing until I was crying. The, the, the fellowship that she had with the brethren in her church was so strong. And they, they just had such a joy together. And, and I realized she would cook and bake like that because she wanted people to come to her house. And there was such strong fellowship. And, and you know, my grandmother is really where I first learned about Christianity. I didn't accept her version of Christianity, but that's where I first learned about it. Although she didn't have the right theology, she was stellar in this area of hospitality. Look at Hebrews 13, verse 1. It says, let brotherly love continue. So the love that we have for one another, don't allow anything to disrupt it. Let it continue. And then in verse 2 it says, and also, do not be forgetful to entertain strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And that entertain in, in the Greek, it means to show hospitality. So, so as brothers and sisters, we have to keep the Philadelphia, the love, the brotherly love, strong between us, but not just between us. People who are outside of our fellowship deserve our hospitality as well. So it could be that we have a guest speaker. How aware are we that they're traveling some distance to come here and it might be nice then to bring them back to our home and let them have a nice meal in a nice home environment. That might be one way that we could entertain, quote-unquote, strangers in the sense that they're not part of our fellowship. And it might not just be a guest speaker, it could just be a guest. And then also we have brethren who, or, or people who are attending with us. They're not brethren, they're not, they haven't committed to be part of the body, they're not baptized members, but they are attending from time to time. Again, Knowing people in a formal setting is one way of knowing people, but knowing people at home, when we don't have suits and ties and formal dresses on, it's a completely different way of knowing people. And it's a very intimate way of uh, providing insight into who you are as a person when you bring people into your home. And we should not be in any way um, embarrassed about our homes, but we are where we are. We have what God has blessed us with, and we want to share what we have with others. So let brotherly love continue. Don't neglect brotherly love, but also don't keep it as a clique, right? It's not just us. There's a whole world out there that needs uh, love and care and concern. And certainly I think, uh, I have to say, uh, you excel with our potlucks. I think it's really, that, that is a form of hospitality as well. When you're willing to cook and, and spend money and, and bring something of substance so that brethren can sit together and fellowship together. And that's truly appreciated. And that really is a form of hospitality as well. But let's, let's take it further and have hospitality in our homes. And again, let's ask ourselves, have we had all of the brethren to our home? And you don't have to have everybody over at once. It could be one-on-one one-on-one, but we make the effort of having everybody to our home. So it's not, it's not me and my buddy. You know, me and, me and Dylan, we're really close. So anytime I have someone over, it's Dylan. No, it's let brotherly love continue. And, and I might also think a bit strategically. So, you know, I don't think Dylan has really spent any time with Gord. They don't really know each other. Let's have both couples over and give them an opportunity to get to know one another. So we can think that way as well and facilitate the development of friendship between brethren. First Peter 4. I can't guarantee you that when you have brethren over, everything's going to go well. I can't guarantee you that there won't be any damage to your property. I mean, there shouldn't be, but you never know. People might break a glass or something like that. Um, I can't guarantee you that the conversation will always be pleasing. Human beings are human beings. And so we have to have that, that love that John was talking about. 
where our love for the brethren doesn't depend on the behavior of the brethren. It comes from the Holy Spirit, and it comes from within out, regardless of behavior. 1 Peter 4, verse 7, But the end of all things is at hand. It really is. We've, the fulfillment of Pentecost, that's over. The very next thing to be fulfilled now is trumpets. The powerful return of Jesus Christ. That's where we are. That's what we're waiting for next. The end of all things is at hand. Be you therefore sober and watch unto prayer. So we recognize the times we're in. We're sober and we're prayerful people. And above all things, above all of this, have fervent agape among yourselves. It's not reluctant. It's not kind of when I get around to it. It is, we're, we're addicted to this. This, this. this is what it propels us. This is what drives us. It's fervent. And I think this is, as we think about this month of caring, I'm going to ask the question, how can we fulfill this scripture as a congregation? How can we have not just agape among ourselves, how can we take it up a notch so that it's fervent agape? Why? For agape shall cover the multitude of sins. Peter seems to be saying what John said, that we know that we have passed from death unto life. How? Because we love the brethren. And here Peter's saying that agape, when you have this fervent agape, it's going to cover, it's going to give our defense attorney the DNA that he needs to say they're innocent, not guilty. And then in verse 9 he says, so in the context of having this fervent agape among ourselves, in verse 9 he says, to use hospitality one to another without grudging. And it's like he had to throw that without grudging in. Because we're all different. And how I behave in my home might be very different from how you behave in your home. And so when I come to your home, you know, forgive me, I might be overly formal or I might be totally informal. You know, Adrian, why are you putting your feet on the dinner table? Oh, I do that at home all the time. Well, you know what? We don't do that here, right? Uh, so there's going to be these sort of differences that we have. But with fervent agape, we overlook these differences. And then he says, without grudging. So, so he kind of understands that it's going to be difficult at times. And this word grudging in the Greek, it means an utterance made in a low tone of voice. Behind the scenes talk. So we need to eliminate that. We love the brethren, period. And if we have to say anything, we're going to say it in a loving way in their face or to their face. So use hospitality. This, this is a tool that we can use. So, so agape will cover a multitude of sins. And we need to have this fervent agape. And you know what? Use hospitality in order to fulfill this. And then he says, as every man has received the gift, so every part of the body has a gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So a hospitality and agape is something all of us need to be involved in. But then within that context, each of us have received a gift. We need to edify each other with that gift. It's a mutually beneficial relationship look at Romans 12 where he says the same or gives the same instruction Romans 12 and verse 4 for as we have many members in one body and all members have not the same office so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and everyone members of one another. And that's, again, when we spend time with each other, we can figure out, you know, how are we members of one another? And, and how are we members of one another? And how are we members of one another? Because we're all different, and, and what you have and what I have will come, to, come together in a way that's different than myself and another brother or sister. And, and when we spend time together, we're figuring that out how we are members of one another, having then gifts according to the grace that is given to us. 
And then he goes through to say what the gifts are to say that we need to edify one another with our gifts. And, and, and I shouldn't be coming to you saying, this is my gift. You know, so you cook, I eat. That's my gift. No. You should be telling me what my gift is. You know, Adrian, you seem to have this ability or you seem to have this leaning. And I'm very edified whenever you do this thing. Oh, you're not the only person that said that. Someone else said that. and someone else. I think I might be gifted in this area because the brethren are telling me they're edified by me in this way. And, and likewise for you. So brethren should tell us where they are edified by us. Verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. We are really in a time, brethren, where Satan is hes busy. And it's intensifying. And the world seems to be getting more and more corrupt. And we have to be standout Christians in this corrupt generation. God needs to look at us and be able to say to Satan, look. The same way he was able to say about Job, look. And so whatever issues we have, we've got to get rid of them and be without hypocrisy. And then how do we do this? Verse 10, be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. We can't read over this. How do, how do we fulfill this? And, and again, the question I'm really asking in this month of caring is how do we do this as a congregation? How do we bake this into our culture? How do we make this a part of, of how we are as a people? Kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor, preferring one another. We prefer one another. You know, we're not trying to subjugate one another. We're trying to honor one another. Not slothful in business. Again, that goes back to what he was writing to the Thessalonians. Work hard. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, and then verse 13, distributing to the necessity of the saints and given to hospitality. And that's for everybody. So he just finished saying we all have different gifts and we've got to edify according to our gifts, but this is for everybody. As a community, how can we distribute to the necessity of the saints? And as a community, how can we be given to hospitality? Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things. And, and you know, we're in a world where everybody wants to be high. Everybody wants to be famous. Everybody wants to be rich. Mind not high things, but condescend. Lower yourself to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. So don't use sort of the economic yardstick to measure one another. Throw that out. And instead prefer one another. Honor one another. The final area, brethren, that I just wanted to call to our attention, and, and it's, it's not a problem here. I haven't seen it or heard it, but I just want to call it to our attention. So how do we, number one was, how do we share and have charity for those in need? Number two is, how do we improve our hospitality one to another? So that's just, you know, every week, and, and Becky had said in the youth study, you know, in the middle of the week, reaching out by phone or in person, connecting with each other. So every week, we know in this community, somebody's over at somebody's house. How do we get to that level? And then the third one, brethren, as we intensify our fellowship, is to avoid the temptation to gossip. And as I said, I, I don't see it here. But whenever we come together, uh, whenever human beings come together, there's always that possibility. Look at Proverbs 10.
Proverbs 10 and verse 18. I'm reading from the RSV. He says, he, verse 18 in Proverbs 10, he who conceals hatred has lying lips, and he who utters slander is a fool. Verse 19, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. And that's, that's the risk. The more we talk, the more opportunity there is for transgression, for slander and for gossip. But he who restrains his lips is prudent. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The mind of the wicked is of little worth. And of course, what comes, what's in the mind is going to come out of the mouth. And what comes out of the mouth is a reflection of what's in the mind. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of sense. And in chapter 16 and verse 28, he says, A perverse man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. So, so we should never be involved in that, creating any sort of division with the, the, the stories that we carry or the gossip that we spread. So, brethren, I don't have the answers. I just wanted to raise the questions and just, you know, let's take one value at a time and think as a congregation, how do we really make that value a core part of our culture? And so as we think about caring, and we are a caring community. How can we be even more caring? Exhibit A, what does it mean? It says an exhibit A is an exhibit in a criminal prosecution or a civil trial. It's physical or documentary evidence brought before the jury. The artifact or document itself is presented for the jury's inspection. Examples may include a weapon allegedly used in the crime, an invoice or a written contract, a photograph or a video recording. The main concept behind correct evidence handling is that the item recovered is the same that is the same as that produced in the courtroom. So when you say exhibit A, whatever the exhibit is, if I'm presenting something, it is the very same thing that was used at the scene of the crime. And I've handled it carefully so that I can then present it to the jury or the judge for their inspection. So when the scripture tells us that we are accused night and day before God by our adversary, the devil, that is legal language. And he is going to have his exhibit A's. He's going to be able to present to God behavior that we have engaged in that proves to God that we are worthy of death. The question is, are we giving Jesus Christ, our defense attorney, any evidence that he can enter as exhibit A and point to to say, no, they're not worthy of death. Clearly, they're not murderers. They love their brethren, and not in word only, but in deed. And then Christ can present our deeds and show that we truly are innocent of the accusations leveled against us. Let's conclude, brethren, in Galatians 6. And as you're turning there, I'll just say that since 1989, there have been tens of thousands of cases where prime suspects were identified and pursued and ready to be put on death row or even put on death row until DNA testing. And once DNA testing came into the equation, they were shown or it was shown that they were wrongly accused. So this, this love of the brethren, this fervent love that we have for the brethren is like that DNA testing that's submitted as Exhibit A that releases us from death row. And that's how we can have confidence that we've passed from death unto life. Galatians 6, verse 9.
And let us not be weary in well-doing. Don't get tired of doing well. This is important. Let us not be weary in well-doing. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have, therefore, opportunity. And, and the window of opportunity is closing. All of us are getting older. Everything is changing around us. You know, there's this thing called the illusion of permanence. We, we think that the way things are is the way they'll always be. It's not true. We don't know what, we, we don't know what tomorrow bring, may bring. So, as we have, therefore, opportunity, let us do good. Let us, the Burlington community, let's do good unto all men. Let's figure out how we can do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org. Thank you.